Okay, would you remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord? All right, let's hear the word of the Lord from the book of 1 Peter, chapters two, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a, a, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. A nice little drawing left for me. I think if uh, Albert has been in ministry for 55 years, I feel like I've been in ministry for 55 minutes. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Albert. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we're thankful uh, for the um, for your grace for the chance to uh, affirm and hear um, all that you have done for us in Christ. And pray that now as we open your word, as we read First Peter, that you would uh, enlighten our hearts and our minds. Uh, give us grace, uh, give us joy in the gospel and in Christ, and teach us what you would have us to know and believe and do uh, this day, this week, this month, and all the time that you have given to us. We pray it in your name. Amen. So we're still in 1 Peter, so if you have your Bible, you can turn 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at verses 4, 4 through 8. So my, um, my growing, growing up years were spent in southeastern Pennsylvania, in a little town called Percocy that everybody mispronounces. But the little church that my parents still go to, to, to today, they've been there about, I guess it's almost 40 years, um, is in a little town called West Rock Hill, which is uh, fun for the, as you'll see, for this, the content of this sermon. But this little church that I went to in West Rock Hill, there was this ridge and there was a road running across the ridge. And our church sat up there and it was, uh, the sanctuary probably held, I don't know, 350 people. And when you drove by, it was, uh, it sat back off the road. Because like, you know, a lot of you know, I like taking pictures of churches. It's a pretty boring looking church, but the thing that everybody knew about it was that it had this pink brick. It was like this weird, odd, like off, not red, not white, just like light red pink. And everybody go, oh, you go to the pink church. <laughs> okay. So our, our church was not impressive on the outside. And when you went inside, uh, it was basically just as unimpressive inside. Okay, so you have, uh, and I can tell I can tell stories for hours about the people that I grew up going to church with. There was Connie, who was famous for her rendition of uh, certain Christmas carols at Christmas time in her like vibrato that like blew the windows out. So everybody knew Connie Potts. Um, there was uh, there was a lady from Guadalupe who had come to the U.S. Married uh, her her husband came had a few kids wasn't taken advantage by a of her husband, and her husband went to prison. That was Vivian. There was um, 
there was, I could go on and on about the people and the things that, that took place inside of that church. We had vacation Bible school, things that you would expect from a, from a, little, a little church. And the thing that I look back on now and I see the people, I see the building, I see the events that we ran, and the thing, the common theme that runs through all of those is that they were pretty unimpressive. Pretty unimpressive. Pretty ordinary, if you will. Pretty, um, pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And if you've been in a church for a while or if you've experienced a church, maybe you're even thinking about our church right now, I think in a lot of ways that is uh, the... Uh, our experience with church, if we're honest, right? It's not that exciting. It's not that impressive. Uh, The people that we come to, we know ourselves, right? We bring ourselves into the room. For most of us, we know that means that that we're, at least we're bringing some ordinary and unimpressiveness into the room, if not other people. And it means that when we come to church and when we think about church, it's clouded by this unimpressiveness. And that leads us to be a little bit fuzzy about its purpose, right? You come into the room every week, and you look around, and you're like, what, what are we doing here? Like, I'm here. I'm boring. I'm ordinary. There's Mike and Tara. They look pretty ordinary. And there's Jim and Caroline. We know they're pretty ordinary, you know? We have new, we have new offering baskets. So that's like a giant... See, there you go. That's a big upgrade for us as a church uh, to move from ordinary to ordinary plus is new offering baskets, Okay? So much of what we do here feels just normal, unimpressive. And so over time, that kind of gets to the point where we're like, why do I even do this? What, what, are, what are we even doing here? And the purpose of what we're here for, the purpose of what we're doing gets fuzzy, gets cloudy. Maybe you've, if, you know, in, in the first six weeks of a church, hopefully you're not there already with us, with Redeemer, but maybe with previous church experiences, you get to the point where you're like, I'm not sure what's going on here. And that's why we're looking at 1 Peter, and 1 Peter helps us a lot this week with this particular experience of church. As we're trying to understand what the identity and purpose of the church is, we've seen two weeks ago that the church is um, God's family, meaning that we have this particular way of life, and that last week that we're God's community, and therefore we have a relationship with one another. And this week we see that we are God's house. And what I want you to take away from, from this today is that the church, the church, our church, is at the same time more impressive than you think and less impressive than you think. The church is more impressive than you think and less impressive than you think, and it's right here uh, in Peter. And Peter's going to use this uh, a, a very mixed, uh, sort of overly complicated, I think, metaphor of rocks, but it kind of builds this beautiful picture of what's going on, both impressively and unimpressively. So let's look at two different kinds of rocks that Peter talks about in these verses. We're going to start uh, with rock number one, which is what Peter calls living stones. So I realized I wasn't in Peter here. Um, so let's read again these short couple verses. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he calls the people, us, those of us who are gathering together as church, he calls us living stones. It's kind of a little bit of an oxymoron, right? Stones are not alive. But we've read multiple times that we've been born again, And so Peter's saying, we as individuals are living stones that are being built into something. 
We know we've all done projects. We've built things. One by one, you put things on top of one another. My sons know how to do that. They get their blocks out, and they put one on top of another, and they build into something. And that something that they're being built into, he says, is a spiritual house. When you read that, you go, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a spiritual house? Well, Peter's picking up on this theme from from the very beginning of Scripture, the very beginning of the biblical storyline, that God wants to dwell with people. In the very beginning, he made a garden. That was his house. It was a garden. It didn't have walls and a roof, but it was a, a house that he lived in, and he dwelled with Adam and Eve. And then there was taken away because Adam and Eve sinned. They were put out of that dwelling place with God. And so the rest of the story, if you track one, of, one theme through the Bible, is this idea of God trying to get back into the presence of his people. We see it um, in little places throughout Genesis, the men and women will set up places where they build a, a pile of stones and they worship God, altars. And then you see the, the tabernacle, and then you see the temple. And all the way through is this, these are the places where God dwells. God's trying to dwell with his people. It's, he wants a house to live in. We look, read at David and Solomon. Uh, David says, I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. Solomon's going to do that. And Solomon comes along and he builds a house for God. And so Peter is picking up on this house, temple metaphor to say this place where God dwells, hey, that's you. When you gather together, you are being built into the place where God dwells. It's like when Kristen uh, had a fairly significant surgery, I don't know, was that six, six years ago now, and we're in the hospital for multiple weeks in a row, and so we end up watching HGTV the whole time. Right, you've seen some HGTV, little Chip and Joanna Gaines. Anybody? Come on, a little HGTV. We, we know the thrill of building something. They go in, we you know, love it or list it, go in. Are so we going to fix this one up, make it what we want, or are we just going to trash it, sell it, and go over here and buy something else? And we know the joy and the thrill of building. And that is what Peter's tapping into. When we come into this room, what we do is we are being built by God into a spiritual house. And he says, Christ is the cornerstone of that house. God dwells with Christ. Back in the spring when we talked about, we were looking at some, some of the stories in John. We looked at the story where Jesus goes to the temple and he says, hey, I'm now the place where God dwells. Peter is now extending that and saying, Jesus is the cornerstone of the place where God dwells. And now all of us are being added and built into this thing. And there's this excitement and this reality that God is doing something in our midst, that the presence of God is here. Right, you may have heard, um, I grew up in a, in the, the church I was talking about, uh, an evangelical church, so we were told that our bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We, we were told that a lot, and when we think of that, when you've, maybe you've heard that phrase before, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it typically is used to mean, basically, you should take care of your body. You should, like, eat healthy. You shouldn't, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you shouldn't have sex with prostitutes. He's like, it's a very moral thing. And so I, sometimes when we think about our, us being temples, we, we only think that that means that we should take care of our bodies. But Peter is saying, no, that means that there's this huge building project that God is doing where he is dwelling with us. When we come into this room, God is dwelling with us. That's what Peter's saying. When we are together as the church, God is dwelling with us with us. This is our identity as a church. This is way more impressive than any of us can even think. Like we come here on a regular basis, we meet together, we talk together, we listen to sermons, we we sing songs, all of these things. It seems often like that's unimpressive and at the same time Peter is saying all that you do in that God is there. 
Your identity is the place on earth where God dwells. That as a gathered people that we have access, direct access to the presence of God. And it's really interesting and I think important that Peter says that you, you are living stones that are being built. That's a passive verb. We are not out there building the kingdom of God. I talked about this at community group leader meeting last week. The kingdom of God is something that God is building. God's presence is here and he is building us. There's this great encouragement of coming into God's presence and having him do something to us. That what we're doing here is much more impressive than we can even dream and imagine. I don't even have words to talk about it, to say that when we read this passage and, and hear that we as a church are being built up This is the presence of God building us into a place for his glory to dwell. That's that's pretty impressive. This is not a human endeavor. There are humans involved, unimpressive humans. We are involved, but at the core, what's happening here is a divine endeavor by God to build us on Jesus into a place where he dwells. That's something that we need to embrace when we come into this room, when, we, when we're sitting there at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon and the Panthers are, are winning, the Steelers, my team, are losing, I'm like, ah, I don't want to go to church right now. You have to remember what Peter's saying, that what we do here is not just a human endeavor, that we're meeting with God. There's no, there's no other way to say it. Much more impressive than we think. We are living stones being built into a temple for God's presence. That's amazing. But that's not the only stone that we see in the passage. There's another, there's another kind of stone that Peter talks about. Because if that was all that there was, if Peter ended the passage right there, you could just run out with your like, triumph flag and this is the greatest thing you've ever heard in the world. And it is. But there's, there's complexity here, and we all know this by our own personal experience. By my personal experience that I can share with you, that my experience over 32 years of being in church doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like this big, impressive thing that God is doing. Why not? Why doesn't it feel like that? And Peter builds it right into the passage. He calls the church and Jesus not just living stones, but a stumbling stone. Listen, he says that in verse 4, he's, he's talking about Jesus, and we can just read right past it if we're not careful. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. And then later, later on down, he quotes the Old Testament multiple times. He brings together a bunch of different passages. There's a quote from Psalm 118. There's a quote from Isaiah 8. There's a quote from Isaiah 40. And he kind of mixes and matches them to say, the stone, the cornerstone, that the, or the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is he talking about? the idea that he's setting up is that there's two different houses. There's the house that the builders are building, and there's the house that God is building. Right? The builders in this passage, in, in this quote, the stone that the builders rejected is referring in its context back in Psalm 118 to the leaders of Israel, the people who had it together, the people who thought that they were in charge, the people who thought that they knew what was going on, that they had it together. Those people, they looked at Jesus and said, no, we don't want you. We're going to reject you because we want to build our own house over here. He, he goes on in verse 8 to quote Isaiah chapter 8 where he says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, a picture, Chris and I are sort of half with one eye looking for a new house right now. So I'm like on realtor.com all the time looking at houses. You know, if you've ever bought a house, you like look at pictures and they pop up and you, you immediately, you see a house pop up and you're like, no way. And you just move on to the next one, right? It's got that like instant, or you walk, you look at it and it might look good on the outside and you walk into a house and you're like, oh, I can't even walk in. This is terrible. I don't want it. Right? That is what, that's what's going on here with the builders looking at Jesus and they're saying, no way. We, I don't want anything to do with that house. That's not the house that I want. I want my own house. I want a house that I get to control and build. Or you build a project. Uh, I like to build stuff out of wood. You walk in early in the project and you look and you're like, oh, that doesn't look very impressive. I don't think that's the right way to do it. That's the builders looking at God saying that's not the right way to do it. We don't want any part of that because that's not, that's not the way that we want to do it. And what Peter's saying is that in the midst of God doing this building project... Men, the world, culture, religious leaders are looking at that project and saying, that's not the way that we want to do it. We don't want to be involved in that. They look at Jesus and they stumble over him. That's the imagery of the stone. Like Jesus is built as a giant cornerstone. You're on a fresh lot. You put a cornerstone. You're like, this is where we're going to build this house. And the person's like coming to survey that and they trip over the stone because they don't even think it's that impressive. The description Peter is giving is of this house that God is building that is completely misunderstood by those around it. So why? Why do, why do we, why do people, why did the men in the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel, why did they stumble over Jesus? There's a lot of answers to that question. But I want to pick out one in particular because it, it connects really well with Peter. So in your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. This is a story about Jesus and Peter. I want you to hear what... Um, find the right page. I want you to hear what Peter says to Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, same Peter that wrote our letter, said, you are the Christ. He correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now listen to this. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. Things that we feel very comfortable with because we've heard this story a million times. But listen to Peter. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter... (laughs) who just said, you're the Christ, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Why does he rebuke him? Get to that in a minute. What does Jesus say back to him? Turning to his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the house of God, but on the house of men. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? 
Because the house that Jesus is building is built on rejection and suffering and death. And Peter, along with everyone else, says, I don't want any part of that house. Build me a nice house. Build me a comfortable house. Jesus is the, Jesus is like the, um, and I've never seen this, but I've seen the promos for Undercover Boss. You know, like people don't know it's their boss because they're, they're looking for this and what they get is not that. This is what Peter is experiencing. Like, he, you're the Christ, so you're going to build this house. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be over here in this house. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You're, we want the good house, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. Get behind me, Satan. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says that the cross, the message of the cross is an offense. He uses the same word. The message of the cross is a stumbling block. We are, as a church, the church of the world is where God has chosen to build his presence and make a house for himself, and yet it is offensive because it's not what we want it to be. And Peter is extending that suffering, rejection, like that's what, he, that's what Jesus did. And he's now saying, that is the cornerstone of the house that God is building you into. The presence of God in the midst of suffering, rejection, ordinariness, unimpressiveness, right? And we often, in our I think human nature assume that if something is suffering, if something is rejected, if something is ordinary, if something is unimpressive, that it's wrong. Or like that we are the presence of God in spite of that. And Peter's saying, no, you are being built into a spiritual house for God because of that. The very reason that we are the the house of God is because we are built in that same vein as Jesus. What does this mean for us directly and practically? I want to run through a couple of things that just for you to think about, for us to think about. I've been uh, sort of dwelling on these for the past 48 hours. This is where we get, this is the most impressive thing. What we do here is the most impressive thing in the world and it's also the least impressive thing because according to the ways of men, the standards of men, what we're doing is not impressive. It's not exciting. So here's some things. Here's some reasons why people, we, stumble over Jesus, why the world stumbles over Jesus. One reason is because Jesus, the way of Jesus, the cornerstone of Jesus is the cornerstone that gives up power and control. Gives up power and control. Just think about the people that we interact with in the world. Just think about the way that the world thinks about power and control. Our culture, we've talked about this over the past few weeks, is is do-it-yourself, self-made, um, being being in charge. You listen to Oprah. It's about sort of being self fulfilled, get, getting having your own way, being in control of your own life. Certainly, a lot of the tweets that you will read by anybody are about being in control. The way we think about the world, survival of the fittest. Right? This is when, when we come to the church and Jesus says, "No, it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the weakest." And we go, "Time out. I don't want to be a part of that." We want the church to look strong, and yet we come in here, and we look at each other, and we're like, what? (laughs) 
We look at ourselves and we're like, what? I, and, it, and it makes us want to reject the church along with Jesus because, you, like we talked about last week, the church is the living stones built on top of Jesus. You can't have one without the other. And so we want to reject the church because it looks weak. Do you see where, where this is going? If you're rejecting the church because it's weak, you're rejecting Jesus because he's weak. Control and power. What about respectability? Right? We want to be cool. We want to be accepted. We want to be admired by people around us. We want, like, we want our church to have the best coffee and the best logo and the best location. And here we are in somebody else's building at 5 p.m. We want the best time. Like we want to be a part of something big, something that makes, something that matters, something that looks good, something that makes us, oh, hey, you go to Redeemer Church? That's pretty awesome. I heard that church is awesome. <laughs> heard that preacher is, oh, no, not that guy. It's the worship leader that's awesome. Like, don't, don't, do you feel that? You want to be a part of that church, the one that people are talking about. That's wanting respectability. And yet Jesus says, hey, I'm going to gather a bunch of communities and like a bunch of bad, boring, broken people are going to be there and they're not going to be able to make much. But I will be there. The gospel means giving up respectability. You read this all throughout the gospels. That's, this is Jesus' whole life. We want, we want what's cool. We want what's now. We want what's big. And, and Jesus says, that's not how I work. I'm about eternity. There's a, <laughs> I probably shouldn't bring this up. There's an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Maybe you've seen this. It's this guy takes Instagram pictures of like famous pastors and then he like cuts out their sneakers and puts it in the side. And then he has a, a picture of what, what the sneaker cost on the website. There's, you know, these guys on stage is speaking to 85,000 people and they're wearing like sneakers that literally cost like 30 grand. Now, I have nothing against expensive shoes. I have nothing against speaking to a lot of people. But there's something about that ethos that is not Jesus. Because the vibe of Jesus is, I'm not going to be respected. What I'm telling my closest friends who just called me the Christ are rejecting me for how out of whack I seem. Our instinct is to build something that wins respect, and yet Jesus says that's not how it works. Control and power, respectability, closely related is self-interest. Right? We want what we want. We want to go to the church that has the, the kind of music that we like and the kind of people that we like and people who look like us, people who think like us. We don't have to deal with those, those other people. You know, we don't want to have to deal with, with wisdom of uh, the, the wise people or the older folks, the Clay Barnes. I don't want to have to listen to him. I'm going to go where I don't have to listen to, to wisdom. I'm going to go where I can just have what I need, what makes me feel comfortable. Right, that's the sons of Zebedee. Remember two of Jesus' disciples? They come to him in the story in Mark 10. They say, hey, who gets to sit next to you? And the king, like, I want to be part of a church where I get to sit next to the guy. And what does Jesus say? The first will be last, and the last will be first. The gospel requires us to put self-interest aside, requires us to put health and wealth aside. You know, in some ways, our, our culture um, hates families, and then in sort of our subculture, we love families. You know what Jesus says about families? Sometimes you have to give up your family to follow me. The church, the place where God dwells, actually should take priority over our families. Go sit on that one for a while. <laughs> 
and just pride in general. The gospel requires that we give up our pride. We want to believe that we're here because we deserve it, because we're better than somebody else. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, those people in your church that you look around and you're like, I don't know what they're good for. Those are the people deserving of more honor, says Paul. That's the gospel. Success through weakness. So what's your thing? What Of these things, of power, is it power and control? Is it being respected or cool? Is it self-interest, kind of being comfortable? Is it health, material? You want to be material, comfortable? Is it, is it your pride? You, just, you come in like, I don't want to go to church with that person. The benefit of being part of the church is that God's presence is here. We're being built into a house. The gospel teaches us that that house is not the house that we would build. And it requires us to give up these things in order to... And there's, there's a way to think about that that's just abstract and spiritual, and there's a way to think about that that deals with the very, like, why you didn't want to come in here, why I didn't want to come here at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Do you feel that? The, the tangibility of the reality that what, what's happening here is God's presence, and yet it can be really hard to feel because it's not what we expect or what we want. I want to finish just with... Um, it's going to take a minute to read, but many of you might, are probably familiar with the screw tape letters, which is written by C.S. Lewis, and it's this fictional account of like a, a, a demon manager writing to his little demon who's out doing the dirty work for him, and they're talking about this, this little, the, the, like the, the worker demon has a guy that he's tracking, a guy that just became a Christian that he's following behind the guy, and he's supposed to be tempting him He's supposed to be keeping him away from God. And this is in the second, the second letter that C.S. Lewis writes. And I just want you to listen to this. Now remember, the, the, uh, in, this, in this context, the enemy is God because it's a demon who's writing this. Right? So this is what he says. This is like the boss to the, to, the, to the worker demon. How to deceive this patient. This patient that you're supposed to deceive. Listen. All, of your, all your patient sees when he comes to the church, is a half-finished sham gothic erection on the new building estate. So he's criticizing the building. That's all he sees. He sees a weak building. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing the liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad. That's criticizing the hymnal. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has tried to avoid. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ, we might say the house of God, and the actual faces in the pew next to him. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. This is a great little different way of thinking about being discouraged about what's going on here because we're missing the main thing by looking at the things that Jesus says, hey, I'm in that. That's the way that I like to do business. Satan wants us to miss that reality. He wants us to focus on the disappointment, the unimpressiveness, the ordinariness, 
and miss the fact that God is building us into a house for his presence. So when we come here, when we're together, when we are the church, we are way more impressive than we think because God is here. And we're way less impressive than we want to think because we're doing it God's way, which is the way of rejection and suffering and death. This is the theme. If it starts to sound like I'm saying the same sermon over and over, it's because we're in the same letter over and over. Suffering before glory. We'll continue to to see that as we go through 1 Peter. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are building a house uh, here, that you dwell with us, that you, um, that you love us, and yet it's not because of the reasons that we think. Uh, you love us and you build uh, us around Christ, uh, who's, uh, who builds an upside-down, inside-out kingdom. It's different than we expect. So, Lord, let us not be deceived and, and tempted uh, to despair, to disdain, to be discouraged about the things that you're doing, but believe and know that you are here. Also pray that as we uh, give our tithes and our offerings to you, that you would use them, that it would be a sign, a true sign and symbol of uh, the reality of your kingdom among us and our faith uh, that you own all things. So now as we worship, Father, allow us uh, to, to be blessed and to receive grace from Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.